in chapter 32, and we'll run through a few announcements real quickly. Genesis 32. Let's see here. So um, I think our only real announcement is um, we we have... I'm trying to click through here, and it's not working. Oh, there it is. Camp Elevate is uh, July... 12th through the 16th uh, for youth and 12th through the 14th for kids. If you are interested in at all in sending your kids, I would suggest that you get them signed up sooner than later. There's more uh, churches involved this year, and so the concern would be that you'd sign up and then there wouldn't be enough spaces. So the quicker we can get at least your intention to send your kids to go, and then we'll figure out the financial side of it later. Um, the better, because then we can sign you up, get you in the spreadsheet, and then you don't miss out on going just because you delayed. So don't get yourself stuck in the paralysis of analysis. Um, but if you're going to send your kids, like let's do it, let's get them in the roster, and then we can kind of start planning accordingly. So if you have any questions about youth or youth camp, uh, please talk to our youth leaders, um, and they'll get you the information you need. And if you're not sure who they are, who, where's our youth leaders at? Raise your hands. Inman's, uh, Sylvie's, uh, Warren's, and some Andersons, and and, and Tammy, and so um, they're all over the place. They're peppered everywhere. So if you can't get a hold of one, um, that that's your problem at this point. So we've made it as easy as possible. Um, and also, if you want to be notified about any future uh, youth outings, we use the Remind app, and you can send a text to 81010 and text the message at AVCHAP. So that said, I think that's all the announcements. Our ladies are nearing the end of their ladies' Bible study. Uh, Very encouraged to hear what they're uh, studying and, and how they're encouraging one another as they study through the story of Rahab. So Genesis in chapter 32 is where we find ourselves this morning. And as we find ourselves there, I want to remember how in the world Jacob got here in the first place. Uh, This message this morning is called, From Jacob to Israel, Obtaining God's Blessing. And if you know the story, then the picture doesn't confuse you. But if you don't, hopefully by the end you'll understand. And so in Genesis chapter 32, um, Jacob has been fleeing from his brother, and he, he was called by God and, and then sent by his mom to go back to Padan Aram, which was several days' journey away from where he was born. And he's gone there to get a bride, but he also went there because his brother wanted to kill him, which is not great, right? We've heard of sibling rivalry, um, but then this is a whole new level. And he wasn't just saying he wanted to kill him. He really wanted to kill him because Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright. And so how did Jacob get here? In the place of God's blessing, how did Jacob ever arrive here? He was a deceiver. He was a schemer. He created problems for his family. He divided his family. He lied to his father. He goes off to this land that we studied the last couple of weeks where he's with Laban and he's uh, scheming against Laban. And then Laban's like way better of a schemer. And so Laban gets the better of Jacob, even robbing him of the wife that he wanted. And he sneaks in the the other daughter that he has so that he can get seven more years of labor out of Jacob. Which, by the way, that's not only shifty, but that's really, like, that's downright dirty. 
uh, not only to Jacob, but how would you feel to be Leah? Like, I know he doesn't want you, but you're going first. Like, what? <laughs> to, to devalue your daughters as much as that and to see them essentially property, and, and by the end of it, they can kind of sense that. Like, dad's kind of treated us like we're his property. He's using us for business deals. Um, yeah, Jacob, let's get out of the land. Let's go back to wherever you're from. It's got to be better. You know, and so um, I want to turn real quickly, excuse me, real quick to Ephesians in chapter 2, because I believe that the, the place of the Christian is really no different than Jacob. We can obviously read the story of Jacob and go, wow, he doesn't deserve anything. Uh, but that's the reality for you and I. Our sin, our deceitfulness, our plotting, our rebellion, fill in the blank. Anything that we've done in opposition to God makes us disqualified from his care, his love, his kindness. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, it says this of the believers that he was writing to in Ephesus, and really of all believers. He says, you, he made alive. And you might even put the word in there and say it this way, and you. You know, you might think of Esau or somebody that would speak about Jacob. You, you know, speaking with disdain. Paul's not saying it that way, but people in your life probably could, right? People in my life could go, you, God can bless you? Why? And I would answer, you're right, I don't don't know why. I can't explain that. And, And so he says, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Think about that. Jacob was as good as dead because Esau was the stronger Esau could have killed him. He had hated him in his heart, which Jesus says is murder in the eyes of the Lord. And so he was already as good as dead if he had not run fast enough. And so he, you he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, one of the best phrases in all of the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. You didn't deserve it. And raised up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of your works, it's the gift of God. It's free. And God, uh, it says, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship, and we are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so all the things that Jacob has walked through since finally surrendering to Jesus in the wilderness, God has foreordained, he has 
picked him, he's chosen him, he knows he's not worthy, but he also knows that if Jacob is able to trust him and walk in the footsteps that he's prepared for him, that everybody else around him will see the exceeding bank account of riches of God's grace. If Jacob can be saved, anybody can. If Jacob can be saved, if God can love him, then he can love me too. Wow. And so back in, in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. So God is faithful to fulfill all that he promises. And Jacob has been set free from the slavery, if you will, from Laban, his father-in-law. But notice that he's set free from one problem situation, and he left it all wrong. He left without saying goodbye. But he flees one situation that's kind of unresolved into another unresolved situation from 20 years ago. Many of you may not know this, but 20 years is how long he's been with Laban. 20 years. So he's come back with a family, uh, with multiple wives, with tons of children, with tons of animals. He, he's, he's wealthy. He, you, know, it wasn't, you didn't have a big bank account. You had a big field full of herds. That's how you knew if someone was wealthy. And so yet he's coming back to a situation that he's not yet dealt with. And I don't know about you guys, but as I continue to walk with the Lord, one thing that I'm seeing is that while I thought early on, I've arrived, I'm set free. And yet practically, he's still working out stuff that's not been resolved for 20 years. And by God's grace, he's forcing me by situations and relationships and pressure and circumstances not to leave that stuff out there festering, and I think that's the word. It's an uncomfortable, it's a nasty word, fester. You know, you think of a, a sore that's not dealt with and it gets infected. And, and I'll stop there so you guys can keep your breakfast down. But the idea is that, that our lives without salt applied will become gangrene. They, they will need cut off. They'll need dealt with, or it kills the whole body, even if just one limb is infected. And so God, by his grace, is taking Jacob through this path of redemption. Hey, look, he's redeemed. Situationally, practically, he's not yet redeemed. Like there's a lot of stuff that has to be worked out. And so we're getting to look for the, through the lens of the Holy Spirit how God is continuing to work through those things. And one of those things, by the way, is his brother still wanted to kill him when he left. And so it's time to face the music or it's time to face possible death in order to make those relationships right. Because when our relationship is right with God vertically, when we're right with him, then what he does is he, by his grace, makes our horizontal relationships with each other and he, he heals them. Now, Romans 12 says, as much as depends upon us, uh, live rightly before our neighbors and our family. Uh, but here's the reality. It doesn't always get fixed in this life. Not everyone will receive that. Some people will go, you, absolutely, I will never forgive you. And then you have to do as much as depends upon you and then let it be. And guess what? In the midst of that, as you've tried to deal with it, even though you didn't have to, 
It will be a lump of coals on their head. They'll go, why did they even think that I would do that in the first place? And perhaps one day it'll give an opening. And so Jacob, as he enters back into the land, he is met by angels. And as he's met by these angels, he sees them. And I I, I believe that this is a reminder that not only does God guard his land that he gave to Jacob, but also... If you remember, the last time he was in the land, he had an interaction with angels. He fell asleep. He was between a rock and a hard place. He was sleeping on the ground with a rock as his pillow. He was all alone. He didn't have any of this family yet. And as he's laying there, the Lord gives him a vision. And it's the vision. He's looking up and he's seeing a ladder. And as he's seeing this ladder, really this ladder is, we find out from John, that it was Jesus Christ. This ladder uh, through whom this These angels are going up and down. and It's like they're going back to headquarters and then coming back down and doing what they were told to do. And as they are ministering saints to all of those, Hebrews 1 says, who inherit salvation. Angels are actually servants of God to minister to us who have inherited salvation and who will. And so he sees these angels and he exclaims, this is God's camp. I'm back in God's land. I'm on his property. Now, we know that God doesn't dwell in one place, that he's omnipresent. We know that he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. But for Jacob, he's still infantile in his faith. He doesn't have the New Testament either. But he's also sitting there going, this is where God is. Because every time the angels are around, God's around. Because if you remember in that vision in Genesis 28, he saw the angels ascending and descending. And then at the top of the ladder was God. And God spoke to him some great and precious promises that no doubt must have gotten him through the 20 years with Laban kind of cheating him out of what he deserved. And so in that promise was that God would bring him back into the land of Israel or Jacob at the time. But his observation, this is God's camp. His exclamation was double camps, Uh, two camps. So I'm going back to see Esau, and God's on my side, and he sent people to, or angels, to back me up. God sent in backup. This is wonderful, because if you've ever gotten into a schoolyard fight, and you're the only one, and there's a big group coming, uh, you get a little nervous, but if somebody stands behind you and gets with you, all of a sudden there's confidence in numbers, right? So he's taking confidence in the fact that he's not alone, and that's, that's a big deal. When you realize in your walk with the Lord, when he brings you to something that's very difficult, the number one thing you need to know is that you're not alone in it. And as believers, Jesus had told the disciples, I want you to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I will be with you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. God with us. And so... He notices evidence of God's presence as he arrives back on the border of the land that God promised he would bring him back to. And all of this is a trial, it's a circumstance that proves whether or not Jacob believes the promise. I will be with you where you go, Jacob. I'm going to prosper you, and then I'm going to bring you back safely. And, and all he had to do was like write that down, and just every time he freaked out, go, Oh, wait, God said he would do this. Okay. 
You know, just to take heart in what God has said, to anchor himself to those words. So in verse 3, it says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. So he's preparing his servants. And they were supposed to say this, Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. Then the messengers, they went and did thus. They returned, and verse 6 says, The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he also is coming to meet you. Oh no, here comes the confrontation. But then it says, and he has 400 men with him. Oh, snap. He's bringing his posse. He's got an entourage. And so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. He's sending out a scapegoat. He doesn't have to be, you know, it's kind of like when you go out in the woods and people always joke like, hey, I've heard there's bears in this area. Well, you don't have to be fast. You just have to be faster than the slowest guy in your crew. Well, here Jacob is like, this is how he also looks at his family. Like, well, you know, we'll send out a crew and then if they get attacked, we'll, be, we'll have time to run off. You know, and, I mean, they'll die, but we won't, right? And so very valiant uh, right here. So the question comes, um, why the 400 men? And have you ever been in the, one of those situations where you don't know people's intentions and, and they do something and the first assumption is they hate me. This isn't going to go well. Uh, they obviously are going to do X, Y, or Z and, and it's not going to go well. And, and I don't know about you guys, but, but it's not the situation that's stressful typically to me. It's the anticipation as I wait for the situation to come to pass. It's those moments leading up to the thing that you think you've already assumed is going to be terrible. That's why you've never dealt with it, right? But I, the dentist, right? Anybody relate to that? Years ago, I had this tooth. I went on spring break, and I went to one of those steakhouses. And they got all the seasoning on the meat, and they're, you know, hibachi and doing all the crazy, you know, it's like, whoa, you want to see egg roll? See, egg roll. And then you're like, that's hilarious. Feed me steak. Entertain me. And so I'm, I'm in college, and I'm watching them feed me steak. And I've got this bad tooth that's been bad for years, but I ain't going to the dentist for it. And I'm not letting them pull it because that's the worst thing ever. And so I got some of that seasoning in that tooth. It was broken open. And, and so my first night in Florida was awesome. I paced like a crazy person all night, like, Origel, help me. Save me from my pain. And so when I got back home and went to the dentist, by the way, the pain of the, the stuff in my tooth was way worse than getting my tooth pulled. But the anxiety of the unknown. And here Jacob is, surrounded by unknown, going, now what? I got 400 guys coming after me. I got my family and some sheep and goats. Like, I can't defend myself. These guys are probably trained. They're with Harry. They're with the Edomite. They're with Strong Guy. I was in the kitchen with my mom. 
He was the one, by the way, in the kitchen with Dinah. I'm just kidding. Dinah wasn't born till later. Bible jokes. All right. So Jacob panics, and then he plans like he always did. And then in verse 7 and 8, he's hedging his bets. Lord, I trust you, but let me go ahead and protect myself. And I think that we need to be careful about this. Do you trust the Lord or do you not? And I'm saying this as a person that I relate to. This this hit me this week. Because I have this tendency to go, well, I know God's my provider. I know he's my protector. I know he's going to take care of all my needs. And many times, by the way, he takes care of my wants. And so he shows himself to be faithful. And then I'm like, Lord, please help me. And then I'm like doing all this stuff. And I spend the bulk of my energy trying to protect myself. And my efforts are always in vain because God picks this way to protect me that I didn't even see as possible. And so Jacob panics. He plans. Then I couldn't think of a P word. He hedges his bets. And then verse 9 through 12, he prays. Now notice, he's growing, he's praying now instead of just hedging his bets, but he he prays after he does all he can do. You ever heard that phrase, uh, do your best and trust God for the rest? Uh, That's not actually biblical. (laughs) We're to pray first. Who do you trust first, yourself or God? Uh, Typically, I'm the one that got me in the problem in the first place. So going back to me for more advice, that's probably a bad idea. But then Jacob prays, and notice what he prays. I'm going to go to verse 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your family, and I will deal with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I've come back as two companies. I, I've, I've crossed over the Jordan with nothing. Everything I have is because of you, Lord. Deliver me, he says, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Now, I, the wording is interesting there. He says, lest he come and attack me and the mother. I don't know if he's talking about the ladies. I didn't do a Hebrew study on this, but it's, I wonder if there's more to that. But verse 12 says, For you said, and he's calling God to the carpet. Hey, you promised God. Have your kids ever done that? Mom, Dad, you promised. It's okay to do that with the Lord. Remembering his promises. By the way, we're not reminding him. He knows what he promised. He can't forget But when we confess to him and profess to him, wait a minute, you promised. We're really reminding ourselves. God promised that he would do this thing. And so he says there, you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sea of the, excuse me, the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he says, you sent me back, verse nine, and I'm obeying. That's the first part of his prayer. You're the one that sent me here. You're the one that created the problem. Are you going to do something about it? Are you going to protect me? And then he says in verse 10, but I do remember from the past, you've always fulfilled your promises, at least up to this point. 
So I, I wonder if he's wrestling with himself, like, why am I questioning this? You've always been faithful. Have you ever vocally said something and then realized how silly it sounded? I'm a vocal processor, unfortunately, for my wife, because she has to listen to me ramble. And then I say st- stupid things. You know, Proverbs says, where, uh, where words are not lacking, neither is folly. You know, the more you say, the more dumb things you're going to say. Um, but he says here, you've sent me back and I'm obeying. And at the same time, you fulfilled your promises to this point. So then at verse 11, he gives a request or a supplication. He says, deliver me. Now notice who he's saying, deliver me from. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Deliver me from my fear. Deliver me from the fear of man, you might say. Is anybody here, don't raise your hands. Is anybody in here struggle with the fear of what people think? The fear of what your family thinks? The fear of what your boss thinks? Now, some of that is, is good. We, we need to care what people think, but not fear it above what God thinks. So his prayer continues. He says, deliver me, I'm afraid. Would you guys start telling the Lord you're afraid? Tell the Lord you're afraid. Stop telling everybody else. They can't do squat about it. He can. He's the God of angel armies. He says, deliver me from my brother. I'm afraid of him. Now, interestingly enough, well, spoiler alert, Esau is not going to be anything to fear. Esau is actually coming back after 20 years. He wants to give his brother a hug. I missed you. I'm over it. In the meantime, what Jacob needs the deliverance from the most is Jacob. Jacob is the source of Jacob's problems most of the time. And have you ever talked to somebody that said, man, I've got all these problems right here. If only I could move here, if I could go there, or maybe if they were my family instead. But what they don't realize is that many times, and what I, I didn't realize many times, was that I was the problem. So I was going somewhere else and I was taking me with me, and I was the source of the issue. I needed to change. Jacob needs to change. That's why God's not letting him go through this and just skate by. He's going to funnel him down like we do sheep or goats or cattle, and we funnel them down so they got to get on the trailer or they got to go through the squeeze chute so they can get the antibiotic, so they can get dealt with so that the problem won't be there anymore. And so then he confesses in verse 11, I'm afraid of Esau for myself and the family that you've given me to protect. I can't protect my family against this guy. He wants to kill me, and then they're in trouble. Esau wanted to kill him. That's all he knows. This is the last time he was in contact with him. Even his mom was like, hey, your brother's comforting himself that he can kill you. That's, he wants revenge. But I also want you to notice that as he's praying, he left out one confession. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said something I believe ties in directly even here. Matthew 5, verse 23. Concerning worship, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother 
and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Prayer is a way of offering up ourselves to the Lord. And the one thing that I noticed, and of course scripture doesn't go into this, he didn't confess that he had actually sinned against his brother and his father. He had deceived him. So if your brother, if someone else has something against you before you come to worship and offer to the Lord, what Christ says is to go and confess that thing, to deal with it, to try to win your brother back before you go to worship. But nevertheless, that's a whole other thought. Jacob's saying, remember what you promised. Didn't you say what you were going to do? And I'm coming back to the land. Are you going to make right on that promise? So verse um, 13, back in Genesis, says, So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. He starts dividing from his folds uh, something to appease his brother and to win his favor. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. So he has prayed, and yet he's still following his scheme. He's protecting himself, even though he just asked God to protect him. And he commanded the first one, saying, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you coming? Whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. Not your brother, but your servant. He's humbling himself. This is a new Jacob, right? This circumstance has caused Jacob to humble himself. So I have to say that can't be a bad thing. He says, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also, behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he'll accept me. Jacob is, accept, is looking for acceptance from his family. He, he's, he's approaching his brother humbly, and he's also trying to win his brother's affection again. So the present went on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. So he sends the present over, and he stays by himself. Perhaps he was irreconcilable, Maybe he was upset. I don't know. It doesn't say. But then, in, uh, so he prepares for the worst. He attempts protecting himself, even though God already said he would. Uh, have any of you or I ever done this? Uh, do we spend most of our energy protecting ourselves? And yet God's not called us to protect ourselves. He's called us to serve his purposes. Sometimes I think we wonder, why don't I have enough energy? And maybe you haven't. But God has saved us for good works. 
He wants to use you and I to further his kingdom. And many of us don't have the energy to do that because we spent all that energy protecting home or protecting our kids or protecting our job or protecting our, our, what things look like from the outside. Some of you have been called and gifted to serve in the body of Christ, sometimes in the walls of the church and sometimes outside in the community he's called you to be in, and you're too exhausted to do that because you've wasted all your efforts serving your purposes and your protection. That's what's happening. Jacob didn't have anything left to serve God because he spent all of his time trying to protect himself from his enemies. And so he prepares presents for Esau to appease his wrath, to try to buy forgiveness, to buy acceptance. He didn't need to do that. He sent the gifts ahead of him, but stayed behind to wait and see if the plan worked. Works-based salvation, it gives you no rest for your soul. In Galatians chapter 2, it says that no person can be justified by their own schemes or works of the flesh. Nobody. Nobody can be justified or given rest or peace for their souls by trying to set up a scale and go, hey, God, I've done more works, good works than I have bad. And I think sometimes we waste our energy doing that. And yet Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, he says, come to, to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my yoke, it's not burdenless, but it's less of a burden. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so God promised to save Jacob, but Jacob keeps trying to save himself, even though he prayed. And Jacob, though he is double camped, he's come across, he's come back to the land with a double camp. He's not alone anymore. And then he notices the angels are with him. He's double-camped, but he's double-minded still. You ever found yourself that way? You trust Jesus, you get it, you understand the gospel, and yet you're still double-minded because you don't realize that the promises that God has made, he made for you specifically and not just for the church generally. He's double-camped, but he's double-minded, and he has prayed. And yet James chapter 1 in verse 2 says this, my brethren, count it all joy when you, when you find yourself in various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. He says, Jacob prayed, save me, but he didn't say, how can I be involved in, with how you're going to save me? He says, if you pray and ask God for wisdom, he will give it to you liberally without reproach, and it will be given to you. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable. If your life is unstable, it's possible that it's because you're double-minded. You've prayed, you trust God, and yet you fear man, and you, in some ways, don't trust God. And God's trying to sift that out and, and free you from that anxiety. 
And so in verse 22 through 26, here Jacob is going to wrestle with God. It says in verse 22, he arose that night and he took his two wives and his two female servants. So there they are. They're with him. He didn't send them with the servants. But it says that he took his family, his two female servants and his two wives, his 11 sons, and he crossed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over what he had, his belongings. And then Jacob was left alone. And he wrestled with God until the breaking of the day. Now I said that he wrestled with him. It says a a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now wait a minute. He sent his servants. He sent his family. He sent his stuff. And yet while he's alone, he's not alone. Now remember the promise from Genesis 28. He says, wherever you go, I will be with you. And, And think about the psalmist who wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because your rod and your staff, they'll comfort me. The rod was meant for dealing with the sheep. The staff was meant for like the crook, but the rod was actually for discipline. He would discipline his sheep, but they'd go astray. And so here is Jacob by himself and yet not alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of This is Jacob's hip. And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, I don't know how many of you in here have a history in wrestling, but wrestling's hard enough as it is. You get a dislocated joint. All of a sudden, you're not thinking, I'm going to armbar this guy and give him the half Nelson. You're thinking, ow, let go of me. My body hurts right here. I have an owie. You go to like little kid mode. At least I do. I can't speak for you guys. But if you dislocate one of my joints, it's over. It's, I, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to cry and say uncle or I'll give you all my lunch money? Like whatever. And here it says that when this man who was wrestling with Jacob noticed that he was not prevailing against him, he touched his hip socket And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. Now, this is the Lord wrestling with Jacob, by the way. And the Lord's been wrestling with Jacob since way before this instance. I don't know why God prevails with you and I. I don't know why he puts up with our junk. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. He speaks to us through his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit to come alongside and convict us. And we still go, nah, I'm good. I got this. Uh, Jesus, get off my steering wheel. You know, like I've got my life. I'm taking care of things just fine. I don't need you. That's what we say to him. We may not say it that way, but we're saying, I don't need you. And he wrestles with us knowing that we're full of it and we have no idea what we're talking about. He prevails with Jacob, and then when Jacob won't let go and use wisdom, he says, fine, I'm going to take the fight out of you. I'm going to make you weak 
so that you will no longer be strong enough to handle anything on your own. You're going to be forever changed because you had a personal encounter with the living God. He could have snuffed him out. But instead, what he does is he goes, and he takes his hip out of socket. And as he takes his hip out of socket, Jacob then continues to prevail and he says, that's fine, but I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Remember, he stole the blessing from his father, and yet he's finding that the blessing is from his father won't protect him from his brother. And so pressure from relational problems in his family caused Jacob to want God's blessing instead of his family. This is a breakthrough moment, by the way. The fear of man is being stripped away. The, the desire for acceptance from his own family. You might not think this is a good thing, but it's a wonderful thing. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when we fear God, everything else goes into the proper place. We begin to prioritize his will above anyone else's. And that includes your kids. You'll do what's best for them in God's eyes instead of what's best for them so they'll like you. And you can insert your own example in there. But the fear of the Lord is what makes us prosperous and fruitful in all the right ways. And so he wants God's blessing instead of man because pressure from relational problems. Perhaps he wants to get right. Perhaps this is his Hail Mary. Perhaps he's trying to get right with God in case his plan doesn't work out. He's on his deathbed in his mind. So Jacob sends everything and everyone over without him so he can be alone. And there he strives with God. And Hosea chapter 12, verse 3 through 5 says this about this particular instance. It says in verse 3, he took his brother by the heel in the womb. That was Jacob. And in his strength, he struggled with God. He struggled with God in his own strength. Yes, he struggled with the angel. That's capitalized. That's the angel of the Lord. That's a Christophany. I believe this is Jesus he was wrestling with. And he prevailed. He wept and he sought favor with God. He found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. That is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. And so as he wrestles with God, God injures him. Now, wait a minute. Would God ever allow pressurized situations in your life? I thought he loved us. Why would he do that? And and then wait a minute, God harmed Jacob? Would God harm his beloved, the apple of his eye, the the descendant through whom Jesus is going to come? And I would say to you, yes. He's not harming him to the point of death. He is disciplining him because guess what? God cares more about Jacob's eternal state than he cares about his present comfort. He cares more about your eternal state than he cares about your present comfort. He doesn't care about your comfort as much as he cares about your eternal soul. And I love this because he loves us enough to discipline us. Jacob gets hurt. His hip gets dislocated. It permanently weakens him, and it changes the way he walks. Wrestling with God, by the way, is prayer. And wrestling with God in prayer, if it's not changing you, you're not wrestling with God. You're just talking to yourself. But if you're wrestling with God in prayer, you will be forever changed. 
And many times it might even hurt you. But it's not a hurt that's meant to leave you unhealthy. It's, meant a, it's a hurt that's meant to correct you and, and get you to a spot where you will no longer be self-reliant, but you'll be reliant fully upon the Lord. Jesus, by the way, disciplines us. And if you turn to Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 1, the writer of Hebrews more eloquently says it than I can. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Jesus suffered. He said, I suffered and you're no better than your master. You will too. You have not yet resisted, he says, to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, then God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? And so all of this is just to say that God chastens those whom he loves and he actually injures us many times. A.W. Tozer is a way more deeper believer than I probably will ever be. He says this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Ouch. But how good. God actually rises up storms of conflict in relationships at times in order to accomplish that deeper work in our character. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. This is graduate-level grace. Are you willing to enter this school? Are you willing to take the test? If you pass, you can expect to be elevated to a new level in the kingdom. For he brings us through these tests as preparation for greater use in the kingdom. You must pass the test first. And so the blessing. He, He goes through the brokenness. He goes through the injury, and then what he finds on the other side is he's still holding on to the Lord. Having been hurt by the Lord, he will not... It's not like he's got God in a stranglehold, and he's like asking him to tap out. He's barely holding on. He's really been pinned, but he's not, going to, he's not willing to admit it. And so the Lord does this work, and Jacob says, I will not let go of you. I will not... Surrender until you bless me, Lord. 
Now he's in the right perspective. So as he arrives there, it says in verse 27, So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but instead Israel, for you have struggled with God. You've strived with God and with men. Notice that you have is past tense. You have struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, saying, Well, tell me your name, I pray. So God renames Jacob. You're no longer going to be called supplanter, heel catcher. I like to call him cheap shot artist. You're not going to be called cheat, scoundrel. You're not going to be called whatever. But then he says you're going to be called Israel, which means you wrestle with God. And that will be his life for the rest. The nation of Israel will wrestle with God. But have you ever thought about it this way? When you're wrestling with God, you're close to him. You're, you're next to him. And, and he's wrestling out of you, by the way, your flesh. He's hurt his flesh. But your flesh uh, is supposed to die anyway. It's festering. It's rotten. It's a carcass. It's wearing out. You all know that. You're trying to keep it going. But the Lord says, uh, if anyone would follow me, he must first deny himself and then take up his cross, which is a death instrument, and then follow me. But I also want to point out, by the way, that Jacob, though he had an injury that caused him to limp, it'd be the thorn in his flesh that would cause him to need the Lord more, God didn't leave him with sin. This isn't a type of, well, you know, this is just my cross to bear. I'm just, you know, I struggle with this sin or that sin. Uh, This isn't sin that he's left him with. God doesn't leave us with sin. He actually removes it and he transforms us and he takes away our thirst for it. But anyway, prayer is meant to change us. It's not meant to change God. So Jacob then asks, who am I wrestling with? Who are you? And the Lord says to him, why do you ask my name? And it's a rhetorical question because he's saying, don't ask who I am. You know who I am. You know who you've been wrestling with. Give up. And so verse 30, he says, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Uh, This week in our Bible study, we read about uh, Samson's mom when she has this interaction with the Lord. And as the Lord interacts with her, she finally realizes it wasn't an angel, but it was God himself. And she's like, oh no, we're going to die. We've seen God's face and and he's going to kill us because we're not holy. And then his spouse looks at her. Actually, it's her husband that says that. And his wife looks at him and says, if God was going to kill us, why do you think he would reveal to us that we're going to have a son? But here, Jacob has this same response years earlier. He says, I've seen God face to face, and yet I didn't die. My life has been preserved. So just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him. I think that's interesting phraseology. He's now in the sun. As the day dawns, he's a new creation. And he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that, sh- uh, that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. This would be a remembrance place 
but also every time he took a step, he would remember when he wrestled with God. And so Jacob recognizes that he survived God's presence, but he also recognizes that it was by God's grace. No one should be allowed to wrestle with the Most High God and live. Jacob walks away in humility, knowing that his life was spared, and his hip will always help him remember. I want to end on one thought. If you know a Christian, someone that claims to be a Christian, that doesn't have some sort of limp, some sort of brokenness, be leery. Someone that doesn't exalt God and humble themselves and talk about themselves like, God's broken me and that's why I am who I am today. Beware. Because they might be where Jacob was before the wrestling. Double-minded, on the fence, not really in God's grace, not really in the sun. Because those who God desires to use much, he, he breaks much. And so, Father, we thank you for your willingness to discipline us. We thank you for the brokenness of Jacob. It's been a long time coming. But as I look at the life of Jacob, you let me go and choke myself on just a long enough leash, long enough before you broke me. And so, Father, I pray that you know, for those of us who have been broken by you and have been brought to that place of surrender, you've not called us to commit ourselves to you. You've called us to give up. Lord, thank you for giving us that place. Thank you for being patient with us till we gave up and said, okay, Lord, you can run things now. <laughs> We're Israel now. We're governed by God, no longer governed by self. And yet there are many of us in here too that I think probably more than likely are in a spot um, where we've not yet given up. We're still trying to run things. We're still spending the bulk of our energy protecting ourselves. Father, forgive us. Continue to strive with us. Dislocate a hip if that's what needs to take place. You are the good shepherd. You know exactly what we need. Help us to see that as your love and not your hate. You love us enough to break us, and I'm just so grateful for that. Lord, um, thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.